When you text somebody and you're to a driver, you are in fact electronically in that car. That's just complete economic nonsense because when you reduce the liability of the driver by allowing liability to be shared upon the outside parties, you're reducing the deterrence effect against texting while driving. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Craig Williams coming to you from a very sunny but fall and crispy Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court, Bob. Yeah, this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, also a blog called Media Law. And Bob, before we introduce today's topics, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio, online practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com. And our topic today starts with a recently settled court case, Kubert versus Best in Kelowna. Here's the backstory. Best was driving and swerved into oncoming traffic, hitting the Kuberts husband and wife driving their motorcycle and causing serious, life-changing injuries. Evidence shows that Best had been texting his girlfriend at the time, Kelowna, while driving. He sent a text message just 17 seconds before the accidents. The Kuberts, in an effort to receive compensation for each losing their left leg, sued not only Best, but Kelowna too for being a distraction. Kelowna was found innocent in the ruling because of lack of evidence. But the ruling argues that with substantial evidence, Texters outside the car can be fairly considered virtually present, in other words, responsible, for distracted driving. The ruling reads that texters can be held civilly responsible if they knew or had special reason to know that the recipient would view the text while driving and thus be distracted. Yeah, well, as texting technology and other kinds of mobile technology becomes more a part of everyday life, uh, it's understandable that this ruling out of uh, New Jersey has gotten a good bit of traction, or at least a good bit of pickup uh, in the news media. Some questioning whether the court has gone too far here in deciding an issue that they really didn't need to address. But the issues perhaps aren't all that simple. The case has also brought on a proposed bill in uh, New Jersey, which would allow police officers to confiscate cell phones at a car accident scene as evidence. That's brought the attention of the New Jersey ACLU, where they see issues with uh, privacy rights being implicated. And, and Bob, I want to correct a word that I used. Kelowna was found not liable in the ruling because it's a civil case, not a criminal case. And we're going to be joined by two guests to discuss the possible outcomes of this case ruling and the proposed bill. I'm first going to introduce New Jersey attorney Mark Saperstein. Mark is a founding member of the law firm of Davis, Saperstein, and Solomon and a part of New Jersey's Association for Justice. He regularly lectures to fellow lawyers on current case law, class actions, and injury law. And he was asked for comment by CNN and other news sources regarding the Kubert versus Best in Kelowna case and has an interest in distracted driving education and prevention. Welcome to the show, Mark. Bob, Craig, thank you for having me on today. Well, thanks for being here. We're also going to have joining us today, Ted Frank of the Manhattan Institute, as well as uh, working with the Manhattan Institute. Ted is the founder and president of the Center for Class Action Fairness. He's written articles for the Washington Post, the Washington Journal, the American Spectator. 
He's also on the executive committee of the Federalist Society Litigation Practice Group. He's also written and commented uh, on this case, uh, and will share some of those insights with us today. So thanks for joining us, Ted Frank. Thanks for having me. Well, let me just ask, first of all, Mark, if I could just stop with you, whether this, uh, whether this case is, is much ado about nothing. This is a decision of the uh, appellate division of, of the Superior Court of New Jersey. Part of this decision that's, that's gained so much traction really was kind of not even necessary for the, for the court to decide here. What's your, what's your take on this opinion? Well, my take is that, you know, law is always evolving. So we have social norms and behavior that need to fit into the modern pattern of, of the common law. And in modern society today, we have kids and adults texting and driving. It's become such an epidemic that I think the court took this up. Now, what's very interesting about this case of first impression is that the court had to struggle with the traditional common law analysis of whether there was a duty from a remote texter in aiding, quote, and abetting the driver in causing this accident. In fact, my colleague, Stephen Weinstein, who represented the plaintiff in this case, argues that when you text somebody and you're to a driver, you are, in fact, electronically in that car. And as a result, you're aiding and betting to the distraction of the driver. However, the, the lower court, on a motion for summary judgment, dismissed the case against the defendant, Colonna, and it went up on appeal. And the court on appeal said, basically, hold up. We're not doing, we're not making a bright line rule of common law that if you text and you're, someone's driving and they get involved in an accident, you are held civilly responsible. What we are saying is there is a limited, limited duty when you know or have a special relationship with that driver that you can be held responsible for aiding and abetting the distraction. I think what all this comes down to in the, in the holding of the case is basically public policy and opinion. The statistics are overwhelming that there's over 681,000 crashes with drivers using cell phones to talk and text already this year, and that the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration has published all of these statistics, and it's turning out that 25% of the crashes are involved in some way, some form of distracted driving on the cell phones. So as a result of, you may say, public safety, the court has held that there is a duty, however limited, because we must protect the public from distraction and driving. And what's your take on this, Ted? Well, uh, I find this case problematic for multiple reasons, and, and let's just start with the basic premise that texting had anything to do with this. Uh, by the very account that you just gave, there was a text, and then 17 seconds later, somebody crossed a yellow line and there was a crash. And that's not how human cognition works. It's not that you send a text and you, you, you're unable to focus on driving for several minutes afterwards. You send a text and you've sent the text. And certainly when somebody is typing a text, they're obviously distracted. When somebody's reading a text, they're distracted. But the idea that somebody sent a text 17 seconds ago and therefore the text had something to do with the accident, uh, I, I, I think is problematic and it, it, it makes... It makes one skeptical of the statistics we just heard. 
Uh, now, certainly crossing a yellow line is, is driver negligence, and somebody should be held responsible for that. But then to reach out and anybody who might have, quote unquote, distracted the driver in the previous uh, minute and a half or three minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes, who knows where the limit's going to be on this, uh, is, is quite frankly nonsense. And, you know, some percentage of the listeners of this podcast are going to put it on their, their iPhone and they're going to listen to the podcast while they're in the car. And are we all electronically in the car with them, possibly distracting them? Uh, certainly, studies have shown that listening to talk radio, listening to dry, uh, passengers in the car, talking on a cell phone, fiddling with the radio knobs, all of these things are distracted driving. Are radio stations liable? Are car manufacturers liable for, for putting satellite radio in the car? Um, so why not just hold the driver responsible? And, and if, we're, if we're really that mad about texting and driving, and, and let's keep in mind that of the states that have put in some draconian penalties against texting and driving, three quarters of them have seen their accident rate go up afterwards. Well, I'm just wondering what the actual impact of this case is. I mean, they, the court said that, and I quote, they said, we hold that the sender of a text message can potentially be liable if an accident is caused by texting, but only if the sender knew or had special reason to know that the recipient would view the text while driving and thus be distracted. How do you prove that? I mean, in this case, the defendant, uh, the court said there wasn't evidence that this girlfriend met this standard. How, how do you ever prove that? Well, for example, my parents send me texts all the time while I'm driving. They say, when you get out at a gas station, give us a call. Um, and, you know, they don't have any control whether I then act responsibly and wait until I, I, I stop before I read the text. Uh, you know, I, I, the same as with email or, or phone calls. Uh, sometimes you might know that the person's in the car driving and you want to leave a voicemail or you, you want them to get back to you when they can reach you. And, you know, a text is not something that has to be instantaneously responded to. That's the, the brilliance of texting. It's there, it's on your phone, and then you can retrieve it whenever you want. And that's the driver's responsibility. And the fact that you might hold outside parties liable for the driver's actions actually reduces the deterrent value to having drivers act responsibly because now they're sharing their liability with potential outside texters. And the way this is going to work in the real world is that every outside texter is going to get sued and then they have to incur tens of thousands of dollars of legal costs to try to prove that they're outside of this narrow exception that the New Jersey court created. But there's this large factual dispute and there are these huge social costs of resolving that factual dispute instead of having a bright line rule that only the driver is responsible. And as a result, well, we don't really have that. We don't really have that bright line rule because passengers can be held responsible for interfering with a driver. But people inside the car versus people outside the car. Right. It's a slippery slope. And, and, and there's no limiting principle in this New Jersey opinion between texters and, you know, the, the reality is, is that everybody on this podcast is liable if somebody's listening to the podcast while driving now, because we know for a certainty that some percentage of the people listening to this podcast are going to listen to it in a car and might get distracted. I, 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 I fail to see the, the, the legitimate legal distinction. Well, I guess we'll have to issue a warning. <laughs> well, Mark, how do you establish this? How do you see this being established in court? How do you demonstrate that somebody who sent off a text to a driver 
knew that it would interfere with the driving the, the driving of the car? Again, I think that's the wrong question. I think that 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 treats these sorts of legal fact finding as as frictionless uh, actions, and 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 and, then, and there's a truth finding function. And the reality is, is that everybody's going to get sued. And they're and and somebody's going to say you can't prove, and they say okay, but you know it's going to cost you twenty thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand dollars to win the summary judgment motion, and we're going to get to depose you, and we're going to take discovery, and you know, or you can just settle for you give us for, chip in an extra twenty five thousand dollars now, and uh, whose insurance is going to cover that? My auto insurance isn't going to cover that for texting. Is my homeowner's insurance going to cover that? I don't know. Well, it would be a homeowner's claim because the person who's texting is not in the car, so that wouldn't trigger the driver's policy. It would only trigger a homeowner's policy, at most. I mean, I, I, would it tr- even trigger a homeowner's policy? What if happens if I'm not at home? Um, what happens oh. if I'm in the mall when I do this? Liability extends beyond the home. I, I think it would vary from insurance policy to insurance policy. And, and you know, somebody who has renter's insurance, for example, um, or somebody who's in college might not have that sort of homeowner's policy. Uh, you're, you're, but at, at any rate, it's, it's just pure social costs. Uh, it's going to be very rare that you actually have this result in court. What's going to happen is that everybody's going to get sued, and, and, and you're just looking for deep pockets. And that is not good for society. And, it, and as I mentioned, it actually deters from the deterrent value. It detracts from the deterrent value of holding the driver liable for reckless texting. Well, we do have precedent for this type of social policy because all of the environmental laws that were passed in the 70s make everybody who touches the contamination responsible. So is this the type of situation where, we, where we're looking at a social policy because people are being injured and injured beyond the ability of the driver to pay so that we need to be able to tap other people that are contributing to this action? But I think that's more of a legislative issue than it is a, a uh, court issue. What's your thought on that, Mark? Well, uh, first of all, I, I, I disagree, obviously, with Ted uh, that there is a public interest in deterring dangerous texting. And it will, will, in fact, reduce the cost of insurance. By deterring texting and reducing accidents, in effect, reduce social costs. There will not be a floodgate of litigation, as Ted proposes or opines. Even in the opinion, Judge Espinoza says, I also observed that the bar set by the majority for the imposition of liability is high and will rarely be met since the duty created arises when the conduct of the person not in the automobile interferes with the driver's operation of the vehicle. It's not everybody that texts uh, to a driver. The court says, listen, you've got to expect that when you text somebody and you don't know he's in the car, even if he's in the car, um, that he's going to look at your text and get into an accident. It's only when you know or you have a special relationship. Let me give you an example where maybe this may happen. It hasn't been tested yet in the court. Suppose I have an employee I know is on the road and that I have to give that employee certain directions to go somewhere. And I text that employer in the course and scope of his employment and he has an obligation to pick up that phone and get into an accident. Am I going to be held responsible? Or my business is going to be held responsible? Maybe. But you can't compare listening to a podcast or a radio to taking your eyes off the road 
it's, it's, it's the same as driving blind. When you take your eyes off the road, you're driving blind. It's different than turning on the radio and listening to a podcast. So therefore, I have to uh, differentiate my opinions with Ted on that. I, I think that's disingenuous on multiple levels because first it treats texting as something that has no social utility whatsoever, and that's simply not true by the fact that people like texting. It replaces things that are more distracting, such as phone calls that would be received in the car. Uh, and I, I don't see any difference between texting, between the employer texting the employee or emailing the employee. The employee could pick up the email in the car uh, and, and read the email from his, the same smartphone that he's reading the text from. If anything, the text is probably going to be less distracting than the email. The, so right there, well, possibly the employer will be held liable for telling the employee how to get directions. Uh, when the employee decides to, to, to look at the text from the vehicle rather than for, after pulling over. And, and that demonstrates the underlying problem. Uh, the suit is going to happen anyway. The minute somebody discovers that, oh, there was a text sent or received or, uh, w- within a certain time range of the actual accident, the lawyer is absolutely going to have the obligation to sue the other party on the texting because they don't know whether it happens and they have to investigate that. And the only way they can do that is to bring them in and, and impose legal costs on that person. Uh, and once that happens, you're, 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 you're creating that social cost and you're forcing people to settle, and, and which, in, again, creates the incentive to sue outside parties who are at best, tertiary liability, uh, and it detracts from the supposed deterrence of texting in vehicles because now the driver isn't 100% responsible. He's sharing the liability with somebody who is a deep pocket and, and, and in the states that uh, have a full joint and several liability. Uh, it could be that the outside... T- uh, Texter is 100% liable, and, and the judgment-proof driver is 0% liable. So uh, that, if anything, detracts from the deterrent value. Well, you know, in discovery, you don't need to have both parties in to get the contents of the, te- of the text message or the email. Uh, in fact, in this case, they found uh, information leading from the driver that there was a text message, and there, he, was on the, he, he was on the phone although he denied it initially and lied under oath, and then was confronted with his own, medical, his own bill. The problem in this case is the court never had the, the benefit of the content of the text to determine whether or not there was, in fact, a relationship or whether the plaintiff can prove that the girlfriend knew he was on the road, although the time stamp seemed to, seemed to you know, indicate that he was on the road because he texted her when he was in the parking lot of the YMCA before he left work. So, you know, it, it, it's a case-by-case approach. I don't think there's going to be a flood of, of litigation over this. I think the social costs are going to go down. I think that this is meant to deter texting and driving. Just don't text somebody if you know they're going to be on the road. Mark and uh, Ted, stay with us. We do have to take a short break right now. We'll be back to talk more about this case uh, in just a few seconds.
Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams with my co-host, Bob Ambrosi. Mark, I think you were finishing a thought before we broke. I was finishing up by saying basically that the social costs will go down by deterring texting. The court looks at how individuals act in society and today with technology. Uh, we need to conform social norms for the safety of the public. And I think the appellate division was saying that where it says that the public interest requires fair measures to deter dangerous texting while driving. Just as the public has learned the dangers of drinking and driving through a sustained campaign and enhanced criminal penalties and civil liability, the hazards of texting when on the road or to someone who is on the road may be part of the public consciousness when the liability of those involved matches the seriousness of the harm. And that's what the court was saying. This is now an epidemic. And that's just complete economic nonsense because when you reduce the liability of the driver by allowing liability to be shared upon outside parties, you're reducing the deterrence effect against texting while driving. What do you guys think about the idea of utilizing technology to stop this problem? I mean, obviously, cell phones, at least smartphones, have an accelerometer in them, and they know when they're moving. So why not just force the, the uh, cell phone companies to turn off the texting feature or any typing feature while the thing's moving? Now, obviously, that's going to affect it on trains and buses and planes, but so what? Why, uh, yeah, what happens when I'm on, my, on the Acela dry, uh, taking a train to New York? I can't use my, text, my, my cell phone anymore? That's outrageous. No, it's not. It's a, co- it's a cost. It's the co- societal cost of not being able to text because it's protecting more people than it's injuring. So why is that not a valid? Why is that not a valid tech? Uh, I, I, again, I, I would say that that sort of impingement on individual liberty—that I cannot use my cell phone in a train, or as a passenger in a car, or as a passenger in a taxi—and and that's, that's not right. Minority of irresponsible drivers cannot text while driving. I, I, I you know, again, it, it, it's treating cell phones and texts as if they have no social benefit whatsoever, and that's simply not true. They clearly have social benefit, and we know that because people spend billions of dollars a year to be able to do it. Um, and, well, what we're really, and what we're I'm suggesting is really a time, matter, and place exclusion. Ago when this technology didn't exist. And to limit that technology 
to handcuff the people who don't know how to drive responsibly, I, I don't think that's fair to the vast majority of Americans. I mean, is this even really just about texting? I mean, is this about mobile technology in general? I mean, what if I send you a tweet? What if I send you an email uh, while you're driving? You know, if, what if I send you an email saying, I know you're in your car right now, but I really need that report on, uh, on the Smith matter uh, sent to me as soon as possible. Is there anything about this decision that limits uh, its impact to just, to just texting? That's exactly right, and that's exactly what's wrong with this opinion. Well, that, that opinion obviously can, can be held over to texting, uh, twittering, or emailing. However, in answering to your question, there are prevention tools for, uh, on phones. AT&T has come out with a driver mode on their Android and BlackBerry. There are uh, Take the Pledge campaigns that have been sponsored by Verizon Wireless, AT and Sprint, and uh, T-Mobile. And they're all trying to promote safe driving. Of course, it's voluntary. You have to put the app on your phone. No one's making you do it. But they're trying to aware, uh, raise awareness and consciousness that texting tweeting, emailing, any form of distracted driving poses an increased risk of harm. In fact, there's 23-fold increase in having an accident when you're texting and driving. And that is not me giving you those numbers. Those are from the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration and all the other organizations that follow accident statistics. So it's becoming an epidemic. So what do we do? We just allow this to continue to happen or do we try to deter No, you hold the drivers responsible when they drive irresponsibly. The drivers are held responsible in this case. So then there's not a problem. Why why is there a problem that requires? Because the fact is, when we pass laws to ban texting, you have the conscientious drivers who stop texting while driving. Oh, now I know it's illegal. And then you have the irresponsible drivers who, instead of holding their cell phone up above the windshield so that they're looking at the road and and sort of distractedly texting, now they're holding it below the the dashboard, and now they're really dangerous, and they're much more than 23 times more dangerous when that happens. And those additional accidents more than outweigh the accidents that are prevented by outlawing it. And so if the concern here is public safety, you know, treating texting while driving as... uh, 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 you know, these sorts of enforcement mechanisms backfire. And if you want to have deterrence, hold the driver 100% liable. When you start looking for deep pockets outside the driver, you're reducing the disincentive against the driver. Well, I don't know what you're relying upon as to why this is uh, not deterring uh, texting and driving, what studies or where you're getting your information from. But my information is... It's the basic laws of economics. Holding a driver 100% liable is more likely to hold them responsible than when you hold the driver 0% liable. You hold it on your lap and you hold it up on the... But you still get your eyes off the road, so I don't know... Well, well having your eyes off the road above the dashboard is much less dangerous than having your eyes off the road below the dashboard. What study was that from? What are, what are the, let me just ask, what are the implications for this case outside of New Jersey? I mean, the, the, the court in this opinion says that they scoured the, the case law around the country and found no other cases that said this. This appears to be a first of its kind. As I say, this is a, not, not the highest appellate court in New Jersey. It was an intermediate court. Correct. How likely are we to see this get picked up around the country? Well, I think there's going to be some traction on this uh, when there's another serious accident that may be taken up in another state or another court. Uh, other states around the country do have similar 
statutes on the books for cell phone use, and I would not be surprised as to whether as other other states get involved in this uh, issue that this this particular type of case, maybe with a special relationship involved, may go to a higher court. I wouldn't be surprised. Gentlemen, this, we've just about reached the end of our program. It's time to wrap up with your closing thoughts and your contact information. Ted, we're going to turn to you first and uh, have you summarize and, and give us your, uh, your contact information so our listeners can reach out to you. Uh, if you want to deter texting while driving, you hold the people responsible for texting while driving the most liable. And this opinion uh, reduces that liability by sharing it across people outside the car. Uh, my contact information, you can see my website at tedfrank.com or my Manhattan Institute website, pointoflaw.com. And Mark? Yes, thank you for having me on the show. My name is Mark Saperstein again. Uh, my number is 201-907-5000. I'm here in Teaneck, New Jersey and in New York City. Uh, I believe that deterrence of texting and driving by those who send texts who know or should have known will distract the driver uh, should be held responsible. They have a limited duty to the public not to distract that driver for the safety of all of us. And I want to thank Craig and I want to thank Bob for having me on your show today. Well, thank you both for being on the show. It's been uh, it's been an interesting discussion and one that I think will reverberate around the country for a while because this is get to happen. So now that we've come to the end of our show where Bob and I have only 30 seconds to share our closing thoughts before we're cut off by a buzzer. So Bob, on your mark, get set, go. Well, I think I've, I've probably made clear through a couple of my questions that I, I really question uh, the, the overall impact of, of this case. Uh, it's got a lot of media pickup around the country, but uh, it's a very narrow ruling in a, in, a, in, a, in, in a non-existent fact situation, in a sense, insofar as the court was uh, issuing uh, a legal ruling uh, that didn't necessarily comport to what it was deciding in the case. Uh, and I think it would be tough to prove uh, around the country that... Uh, that somebody was doing this. So that's my 30 seconds. And, and my thought on it, Bob, is that I think that we can deter uh, texting by criminalizing it. Uh, I think that if people text while they're drive, they should be subject to criminal penalties, and that needs to be done so we drive the point home a little bit harder and maybe make it easier for the prosecutors to get misdemeanors or perhaps in a, in a felony situation if there's a death involved. But certainly... Um, Technology can solve some of the problem, and, I, and uh, Ted's right, it does impinge on other people, but uh, it can solve some of this problem and eliminate it. So that's my thought. And that brings us to the end of our show. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. Uh, thanks to both of our guests again for being with us. We really appreciated their time and thoughts on this issue. Yeah, I really appreciate Ted and Mark's lively discussions. In two weeks, join us for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast, covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.
The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.